Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for this day. Um, Lord, we thank you for the rain that you have made to fall and how you are the one who, who controls that. Lord, you are sovereign over all creation, and we praise you for that. Um, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we ask that you would, you would help me to bring it to these people and, and help us all to understand it, um, to know what you have to say to us through it and, and what that means for our lives. Lord, help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Okay, I'm going to start by asking you to imagine something with me. I want you to think about or imagine some sort of, like you've just finished a project that was really, like it really needed to be done. You were really excited to do it. It was maybe a lot of work or it was really difficult to do. And you finally have finished. Maybe it was building something in the yard for the kids to play on or sewing a quilt that was really, really pretty or cleaning something that was super dirty that just really, really needed to be done. And it's just so satisfying. Now that you're finished, ah, that's, that's a good feeling, isn't it? And as you're admiring your work, as you're admiring this thing you've done, all of a sudden, you hear this voice from somewhere, and you don't know what it is. And it says, look what I've done. Isn't that beautiful? And to think, I did it all by myself. You look around, trying to figure out where is this voice coming from. You're looking and you're looking, and all the while, this voice is going on and on about this thing that this thing has done, this person. It's boasting about the work that's been done. Finally, you figure out where it's coming from. You look down, and there's the tool that you are using to do that job. Whether it's the hammer, the sewing machine, or needle and thread, or the sponge that you were using to scrub, whatever it is, this thing has developed a voice and a brain, and it's talking, and it's, man, it's proud of itself. It's... It's so good. It's so amazed at the work that it has done. Not that you have done, that it has done. I don't know about you, but I would be really annoyed if that happened to me. This past week, we had to clean the carpets in the apartment that we just moved out of. And while it wasn't very difficult work, it took a long time to do it because carpet cleaners aren't very fast workers. Now, if, if after I was done, I looked and I saw these clean carpets that I had, you know, I had made that way, I, was, I made them clean, and then the carpet cleaner piped up and said, I did that all by myself, I would be really mad at it. I would say, no, you didn't. I did that work. I was in control of you. I only used you to do that work. Now, this is similar to what God experienced with Assyria in our passage for this morning. Before we get there, let's sum up where we've been so far in Isaiah. So the first six chapters in Isaiah are kind of an introduction to the rest of the book. In chapter 6, Isaiah hears his call from God that he is going to be a voice for him to the people. Now in verse, or sorry, chapter 7 and 7 through 12 talks a lot about the relationship between Assyria and Judah, between the people of God and that that empire of Assyria, who was conquering all these other nations around them. You'll remember back in chapter 7, Judah was invaded by two of their northern neighbors, 
And Isaiah challenged King Ahaz to trust in God instead of reaching out to Assyria for help. And we know that Ahaz did not do that. He reached out to Assyria for help. And in chapter 8, we find out how that plan backfired. And rather than helping Judah, Assyria actually was going to invade them, and only Jerusalem, the capital, would be spared. In the last part of chapter 9, which we heard from last week, we heard in detail about the kind of destruction that was coming as Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and set its sight on Judah, the southern kingdom. On our passage today, sorry, one thing is clear from all of this. God was going to use Assyria. So Isaiah was preaching to Israel and Judah, but mostly to Judah, that Assyria was going to come and bring God's punishment to them for their sin. So we know one thing. God was using Assyria, that wicked nation Assyria, as the instrument of his judgment against Israel and Judah. Assyria was the tool that God was going to use. Our passage today answers some really important questions that that brings about, that we might have about this. Now, if God was going to judge Israel and Judah, why would he use Assyria? Assyria is such a sinful, wicked nation. Weren't they just as wicked as, if not even more wicked than Israel and Judah themselves? Why would he use them to judge the sin of Israel and Judah? Was it fair for God to punish Israel and Judah and let Assyria get away with their own sinfulness? Furthermore, did Assyria know that they were being used by God? Weren't they just doing the thing that they really wanted to do and conquer nation after nation and take over the world? And Israel and Judah were just two more countries on their list. And how did Assyria's plans and God's plans fit together? These are all questions that swirl about in my brain as I'm wondering about this. And they relate to the much deeper questions of the sovereignty of God and how that fits with human choice. If God is in control, does that mean we're just robots? We're just doing whatever he wants us to do? How can God be sovereign and still hold us accountable for our sin and our wickedness? We'll see from our passage today that God answers these questions and helps us understand the answers in a really important way. So let's begin in 10 verse 5. Isaiah says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. God introduces Assyria by referring to them simply as a tool in his hands, They're just a rod or a stick or a staff that he's using to do his work. They're simply an instrument of his fury and discipline against Israel and Judah. Verse 6 further explains how Assyria is doing God's work. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Assyria is going up against Israel and Judah to simply do what God wants them to do. But that isn't what Assyria thinks. They don't know that they're God's instrument of wrath. As we see in verse 7, Assyria does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. 
a serious heart and a serious intention in everything is to take over and to be in control. They don't realize that God is actually just using them to do what he wants. Assyria doesn't know that they are executing God's judgment. They're on a rampage of destruction, and they think that it's all part of their own plan. They think they've been successful because of their own strength. Like we see in verse 8, Are not my commanders all kings? It's Assyria talking. Commanders being kings. Kings are powerful people. Commanders are in the, the army. They command the people and... You know, if the commanders are as powerful as kings, that means that the whole nation is infinitely powerful and can do whatever they want. Verses 13 and 14 show us even more of this kind of boasting. For he, he being Assyria, says, By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull... I bring down those who sit on thrones. Assyria thinks that they're so strong and powerful, and they were. And for Assyria, Israel and Judah are just two more nations on the list of countries to conquer. Look back at verse 10. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Syria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and Samaria and her idols Sorry, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Assyria has no regard for the God of Judah. They think that Yahweh is just another idol, just another small, puny God that, just like all the other nations around them had. And they're going to destroy him, Yahweh, and Jerusalem, just like they've destroyed everybody else. Isn't this ironic? They think that Yahweh is just one more idol to be conquered, one more image to be destroyed, when actually he is the sovereign God of all creation who is using them to do his purposes. There's some irony there, and it's funny. Verse 15 helps draw out this irony. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? Assyria is just a tool in God's hand, like an axe or a saw. The saw and the axe aren't the ones who do the work, but rather the one using them are the one who does the work. How silly would it be for that tool to think that it's greater than the person using it? Just like my carpet cleaner earlier this week, it would be ridiculous for it to think that it was the one doing the work and that it was better than me who actually was using it. Verse 15 goes on to say, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. As if Assyria has any right to boast against the very one who is using them to do his bidding. So what's God going to do about that? Assyria is boasting about their own power, their own might. They're not submitting to the Lord and, and letting him do his work, or recognizing that it's his work that they're doing. Is God going to let Assyria get away with their pride and arrogance and their illusion of control? The answer, and I hope this is obvious, is no. God is going to use Assyria, that's for sure, that sinful nation. But then afterwards, he's going to deal with Assyria in their own way, for their own sin. And we see that in verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, 
that work being the destruction of the nation. He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And verse 16 shows us what he's actually going to do. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of this forest will be so few that a child can write them down. So God compares the Assyrian army to a forest and promises to cut it down until there's just a handful left. 2 Kings 19.35 tells us when this or something very similar to this actually happened. Years later, in the days of Hezekiah, we read that, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib king of Assyria departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. That's 2 Kings 19, 35 and 36. Whether that's the exact event referred to here in Isaiah 10 or not, the idea is the same. God is going to humble Assyria for the wickedness that they have done by wiping out the Assyrian army. So to ask the question again, should an axe boast over him who uses it? And the answer is definitely not. God opposes the proud, as we read in James 4, 6, and Assyria was going to be humbled if, in a devastating way. Now, we've come to a point in our passage where there's a pivot, there's a turn. The first part here we've, that we've seen is judgment against Assyria. But now, going forward into the end of our passage, we see, rather than... Isaiah talking to Assyria, he turns and talks to Israel, sorry, Judah, and gives them a three-part encouragement. And that starts in verse 20. There's a destruction that's coming to Assyria, which we've seen so far, and it's good news for Judah. And Isaiah breaks that down, that encouragement, from verse 20 down to the end of the chapter. Firstly, we see in verses 20 to 23 that God promises that Israel will not be completely destroyed, but that a remnant will remain and will return to the Lord in future days. We read, In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. That's verse 20. We've heard this idea before that God would preserve a remnant of his people and that they would trust him instead of trusting in Assyria as Ahaz had done. Secondly, in verse 24 to 27, God encourages his people not to be afraid of Assyria. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the, the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. That's 24 and 25. Notice how God compares Assyria to Egypt. 
Just like he delivered Israel from Egypt, so he's going to deliver them from Assyria. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of, you, because of the fat. Isaiah 10, 26 and 27. Now that last phrase is difficult to understand both in English and in Hebrew, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. But the idea is that God is going to completely save his people from the Assyrian oppression, just like he saved them and brought them up out of Egypt so many hundreds of years before. And just like he saved them from the Midianites in the days of Gideon. And the third encouragement that Isaiah gives is that he describes Assyria marching to Jerusalem only to be stopped in their tracks by God's judgment. We see this in verses 29 to 32. They're full of place names that we might not be able to pronounce or they sound really weird to us. But if you look on a map, some of you might have study Bibles. They have maps in the back. Um, If you plot out all of those different place names, it's actually just the road that Assyria would take to get to Judah. Um, Yeah, so Assyria is making an advance to Jerusalem to conquer it and to take it over. Um, But Isaiah is describing that they'll be stopped. God intervenes in verse 33. He picks up the forest image again, which we saw in verses 18 to 19. And the chapter ends by describing the destruction of the Assyrian army. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So after using Assyria to do his work, God is going to judge them. Like a lumberjack cutting down the forest, he's going to reduce their powerful army to basically nothing. He's going to humble them and bring them down low. And that's where the chapter ends, the judgment and destruction of Assyria. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that Assyria was just a tool in the hand of God. They were just doing his work. Of course, we know that they didn't think that. They were destroying nations because that's just what they did. They just wanted to destroy nations and be in control. So one of the big questions answered by this chapter is, how can that work? How can God use sinners to do his work without supporting or condoning that sin? And the answer is that God doesn't let the Assyrians off the hook. Yes, God uses the wicked people of Assyria to do his work, but yet we know that he's going to judge Assyria for their own sin, and he's going to deal with it in their own way. So in the end, this passage isn't about the Assyrians or about the Judahites or any of, any of those people specifically. This passage is about a God who is sovereign over the nations and over human hearts. Yahweh was not just the tribal God of Judah, as people would have thought in those days. He was the, the, he was the God of heaven and of earth, and he still is. And all of the nations are under his rule. 
This passage tells us that God is so sovereign that even human decisions are under his control. Just think about it. So Assyria had all sorts of things to gain. They had all sorts of selfish motives for conquering Israel and Judah. They could get silver and gold and wealth. They could get power, glory, probably slaves to do their heavy labor. But even those sinful desires and those sinful things that they wanted, they were contained within the sovereign plan of God. Did you know that God is sovereign, in charge, and in control, even over our choices and decisions, even over our sinful choices and decisions? The Bible tells us this in many places and in a few different ways, not just in today's passage. So think about when Joseph was sold into slavery and went down to Egypt. His brothers hated him and wanted to kill him, but ended up selling him into slavery instead. But those evil, sinful actions were a part of the sovereign plan of God, who intended for Joseph to go down to Egypt in order to save many lives during the famine that was there. That's why Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Notice he didn't say, you meant evil against me, but God had a plan B, and he turned it around for good. He made it work out okay in the end. No, 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 no. God had a plan A, and what happened was exactly what God's plan A was. It, uh, sorry. Joseph's brothers had one plan for that event, and God had a different plan for that event. It was the same event, but the same sovereign plan of God that brought it about. Man's purpose was evil, but God's purpose was good. And guess which purpose won the day? God is sovereign, even over our meaningful choices, and even over our sinful choices. The same thing happened a few hundred years later with Pharaoh. Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go out of Egypt, and God dealt with him for that, through the the ten plagues. But that whole process was part of God's sovereign plan. God repeatedly hardened or strengthened Pharaoh's heart. That's another way to interpret that word or to translate it. And God told him this in Exodus 9.16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. It was God who made his heart hard, who made his heart hard toward him so that God's glory would be known and proclaimed throughout the world. We see the same truth so clearly in one of the most sinful acts in human history, the death of Jesus Christ. Think of how many people acted wickedly in that whole proceeding, from Judas betraying him to the authorities, the religious leaders making things up to say that he was blaspheming, Pilate, who shielded his eyes and had nothing to do with the whole affair, and the soldiers who actually pierced him and hung him on the cross. And yet, all of that unfolded exactly according to the sovereign plan of God. In Acts 2 verse 23, Peter tells us that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They crucified him, these sinful men, yet it was part of God's plan, even before creation, that that would happen. We see the same truth two chapters later when the early Christians prayed like this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's Acts 4, 27 to 28. God is sovereign, even over human choices and even over human sin. Now, this doesn't mean that we aren't responsible for those choices and those sins. We aren't robots who just mindlessly do whatever the Lord wants us to do. We make meaningful choices, and God holds us accountable for those choices. Just like we saw in today's passage, Assyria made the choice to come against Judah, yet God was the one who was using them to do his work, and he dealt with them according to their sin and judged them. They weren't let off the hook just because God was using them as his instrument. Now this gets really confusing because on one hand we have God's sovereignty and on the other hand we have human choice which so often seem like they're on total complete opposite sides of the spectrum. But yet somehow the scripture tells us they go hand in hand and in fact God is the one who ordains or orders our choices and we don't know how that works. We don't always know how things work in the scriptures or when it comes to theology we don't some of the things that are told us in the Bible, we don't always understand. And, and that's where faith comes in. We know that this is what the Lord has said. So we have to trust him because he is God. So why is this important? Why do passages like this tell us about the sovereignty of God? Is it just so that we can puzzle them out and figure it out in our brains and wrap our minds around it and understand it and have that knowledge? Well, yes, that's true, but it goes so much beyond that. It's not just head knowledge that God gives us through his word. God tells us these truths so that we can trust him. God told Judah about Assyria's coming destruction because that told Judah that they were safe. Even though Assyria was coming against them and they would be destroyed and be taken out into exile, God had a plan and God was going to judge Assyria and God told them that that he would bring them back into their land. They could trust him. They were safe. Even though things may have felt chaotic and out of control, They weren't because God was in control. He's on his throne and he is always working everything according to the counsel of his will, as Ephesians 1.11 tells us. And so God was able to be trusted. So is this something that we need to be reminded of today? So just think about the world that we live in. Brad had mentioned the price of gas is sky high and it keeps going up and up. There's so many things in Canada even that seem like it's just chaos. 
There's threats to our religious liberty. Um, inflation keeps going up and up. Things get, keep getting more and more expensive. Mortgage rates are going up. Gas prices are skyrocketing. There's shortages of food and other supplies. And we here in Canada, even though those things, those things seem difficult, we have it pretty easy compared to other places in the world where there's famine, drought, war, oppression, so many worse things than we're experiencing are making life so hard for so many. And it feels chaotic sometimes. And it can seem easy to worry. Or maybe the struggles are even closer to home. Maybe in your own family or your own life, things just feel like chaos. Some people I know just feel like they have the worst luck in the world. One bad thing happens to them, and then all of a sudden, another bad thing happens before they can deal with that one. And then another bad thing happens to them before they can deal with that thing. And it's just, some, for some people, it seems like a never-ending spiral of just chaos. But I hope that today's passage helps you to trust the Lord. Because he's in control And we know that if we trust Jesus for salvation, no matter what happens to us in this life, we will be safe. We will be with him in glory for eternity. He reigns over every human heart, whether they know it or not, and he reigns over every situation that you may find yourself in. If you feel like little Jerusalem and powerful Assyria is coming to gobble you up and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Be okay in that. The Lord is in control. He's in charge. Psalm 47 verse 8 tells us that God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. He's the king. Powerful rulers and nations like Assyria are merely tools in God's hand. He's building his church and death can't stand against it. As Matthew 16:18 says, he is working all things for good for his people, as he's pro- and he's promised to return and make all things new. And so we can trust him. We can serve him. We can take risks and follow him into dangerous places. This is why people like Charmin can say, I'm going to the Philippines. She doesn't really know what's going to happen when she's there. This is why people like Chris's sister, Amy, can go to Romania and serve him, not knowing if they'll have all the finances they need, not knowing if they'll even make it over the ocean on an airplane, not knowing what will happen to them when they're there. They know that God is sovereign and he's in control and they are safe no matter what happens. God says to his people in verse 24, of Isaiah 10. O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. Be not afraid. What are you afraid of this morning? What fears do you need to hand over to the Lord, to the sovereign God who is in control of all things? We are safe in his hands, and nothing can come against us.
even if it seems really bleak, remember that God is in control and he's coming back to rescue us from our sin. So let's seek to trust God as we pray and as we sing and throughout the hours and days ahead. Let's ask God to give us the faith to believe and to trust. Let's pray. Lord God, we we thank you for passages like the one we've just looked at today that show us that you are in control, that you are sovereign over all things. God, you used Assyria to do your work, and Assyria was a sinful nation, and it doesn't always make sense to us, and yet, Lord, you promised to judge the sins of of man, and, and you have done that. So, Lord, as we look at our own lives, as we um, contemplate these things, Lord, we know that you are in control. We know that anything that happens to us is a tool in your hand to sanctify us and to make us holy. Help us, Lord, to trust you and to have faith that you are in control and you know what you're doing. Lord, help us to relinquish our sense of control to you and to trust you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.